to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing sacred and powerful stories of women who have too often gone unheard, but are most often the ones we need to be listening to. I'm your host, Andrea Miller, and I'm joining you from Kansas City on the native lands of the Kaw and Kickapoo Nations. My guest for this episode is a remarkable woman whom I've had the honor of learning from her writing and her work. Rosie Kennedy is a thought leader, author, and content creator specializing in equity, intersectional women's history, and storytelling as a tool for change. In this episode, we're going to talk about Rosie's story and what led her to create the Brave Sis Project in 2019. Since then, she has been passionate about creating spaces where she offers history, learning, awareness, and sisterhood for BIPOC women and their friends. We also discuss her acclaimed book, Our Brave Foremothers, that she just released last year to uplift Black, Brown, Asian, and Indigenous foremothers. As we celebrate Black History Month this month and Women's History Month next month, please listen in on our conversation as we dive into Rosie's book and amplify just a few of the 100 Black, Brown, Asian, and Indigenous women who changed the course of history. Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you so much, Andrea. I am overwhelmed with joy to be here. It's such an excitement for me. I was thinking today, all the hate and as many times as I don't like social media, there are so many good things about it. Connecting with people like you, like we have connected on Instagram months and months ago and talk here and there. And it's like, this is an example of the goodness that can be found. It is. And I was actually on a call today with a friend who spends a lot of her time understanding the shifting algorithms behind these uh, meta platforms. And it was the most amazing learning I've had in months, maybe even years. Example, videos are no longer good on Facebook. We were told last year it had to be videos. It's no longer good. No longer good. So she was showing me all the things that push you down in the algorithm. And what that does is it like, it it impedes me from seeing people in voices like yours, right? Mm-hmm. You know, months went by and I was like, where where is her Story Speaks podcast? Why isn't it showing up? And it's just, it's almost like we have to push against all these barriers to get to the good stuff, right? And so it's worth it when we do it, but we need to, remember and be, um, you know, uh, deliberate about it. So when I saw you again in my feet, I was like, ah, of course, I want to talk to you. I want to be, I want to be in connection. So I'm really grateful. And unfortunately, any of us posting about Palestine and ceasefire are definitely, I was shadow banned for quite a while. I couldn't even comment or anything. So it's like, that's it's, happening. It's, also. it's even words like women, Words like hatred, words like immigration, words like, you know, patriarchy, any negative thing. She basically told me you have to post cats and happy faces and then put all your stuff in the comments and then then it won't get pushed down. But I mean, it's just incredible in this moment where community and sisterhood and fellowship is needed more fellow she fellowship is needed more than ever that we have to like fight to get to it but it's worth it's worth the effort so it absolutely is and as you're talking I'm thinking about and we'll get into your book but but the suppression of of this information and social media and the important things but the suppression of history history and your goal of 
putting out in the world these amazing Black, Brown, and Indigenous women and their stories because you, I'm going to introduce you real quick. I mean, I've my listeners know a little bit more about you from the intro, but you are a thought leader, an author, a content creator specializing in equity, intersectional women's history, and storytelling as a tool for change. And you are the author of a book called Our Brave Foremothers that we will get into in just a little bit as we... Um, Talk a little bit more, you know, we're recording coming up on Black History Month and then Women's History and all the suppression of those stories. And you are such an advocate for sharing stories and you have a passion for it like I do. And so that's why you're here today. We're going to talk about your story, but all the things that you have created. So I'm just I'm thrilled to have you here and to see where this conversation leads. So am I am so grateful. Thank you. And yeah, you know, I'll just say about storytelling and voice. I was talking recently with um, one of my best friends, my older daughter's godmother, and I was telling her and her husband, both, we were both on the phone with our spouses. So we were on a four person Zoom. And I was saying to her, you know, do you remember the time when you said to me, Rosie, you always talk, talk, talk about yourself and you never ask about anyone else. I was in my late twenties then. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, that was really painful for me to hear, but I, I learned and I grew so much from that moment. And her husband bolted in and said, wait a minute, I say that to her all the time. <laughs> and we just had a really good laugh about it. But I think the piece that I, the reason I bring it up is it's like as women, we are, you know, and femme identifying people in our society, we are often the holders and the keepers of the real truth, right? Not the not the manufactured, manipulative kind of history. We're also the holders of the of of like the hearth and the things that keep us whole as communities and people. So it's natural that we would want to be storytellers. And the suppression of storytelling and story sharing is another one of these forces that is deliberately trying to keep us from our our top level of thrivance and. And, and community and sharing. So this work is like what you're doing and what I'm trying to do. It's actually holy work to me. And I'm not like a particularly ecclesiastically minded person, but it feels holy in the sense of it's a, it's, it's sacred practice to share. I believe that. Yeah. I really do. It's, it, it, it lights me up to think about it. Frankly, I, I absolutely believe that too. And I want to backtrack a few seconds for what you shared is I want you to talk about yourself today. So ignore whatever that that person said, because I, this conversation is you are centered in it and I want to talk about you. So get that thought out of your no, mind. No, it's all good. It was, it was also just a moment in humility for, for me as a young growing person. And I think we have cycles of that in life where we're like, oh, wait a minute, let me check in with myself, which is also part of what Brave Sis is about as well, right? I mean, I can get into all the different levers behind what yes, we are going to talk about Brave yeah. Sis Project. I cannot yeah. wait to hear more about it. So before we dive into that, Rosie, just tell me and my listeners, where are you in the world? What's your day-to-day -day life? Sure. So I, I live in Seattle and in the woods. I live in the forest, actually, so not in the city, just a few, few miles outside. We moved here from the Bay Area a year and a half ago, and this is our empty nest. My husband and I and our dog live here in pretty comfortable tranquility in a really small house. We were in the Bay Area. Before that, I lived in Santa Fe and Albuquerque. I was in New Mexico for 12 years. I'm a native New Yorker. I was born and raised in New York. So um, I usually say it like I see it. And I also lived in Paris 
in my late 20 in my mid to late 20s i lived in paris i had a french husband starter husband <laughs> and then back to new york so I think the through line is I've lived in big cosmopolitan cities all of my life where you're always intersecting, interacting, abutting with different cultures, different lived experiences, different languages. You know, I've always been in these very culturally pluralistic places. And my own story of my upbringing, I guess, in New York was very much that as well. I went to the top girls elite private school in New York, by pure happenstance, as a kid, I was plucked out of Catholic school and put into the Brearley School, which is like an iconic institution in New York. And I'm 60 years old. So I graduated from high school in 1981. And so I spent the late 70s and 80s in this really New York City, super amazing, decrepit, melting pot, creative place, right? I mean, that was the time when New York was you know, when they had the headline press to city drop dead, you know, city was in bankrupt and it was very gritty and urban. And that's how we grew up. That's how I and my girlfriends who are still my friends to this day grew up going to like, you know, um, underground clubs and being just in these really sophisticated spaces. And that's had such an influence on the way I see the world now. I, I would never be able to enter with like a, a narrow minded viewpoint. I've always been super interested in everyone's story and bonding and connecting and learning what makes you tick. So that's a big part of my background. And then, you know, when I lived in Paris in my 20s, obviously I was an outsider. I experienced a lot of racism, you know, because France, you know, it's it's different, different beasts, same, same challenges. And, but, you know, I also had some pretty amazing times. I think the most important piece that helped made me the person I am today is it helped me understand um, cultural relativism and that like mm -hmm. I couldn't just be this the me that I was as a New Yorker as a this as a that educated woman outspoken young person it would be received differently in France even if I were white because I was l'américaine I was always different and so I really got to experience that thing of sort of a double layer of othering right? Othering because of my race, but also my nationality. It gave me both humility and like a sense of righteous indignation at the same time. <laughs> so all um, of those pieces kind of contribute to the way I walk through the world today and the things I think about and the way I, I look at issues of intersectionality, frankly, and bonding. For sure. Yep. For sure. And I'd love to hear too, just a little bit. So, so much of that, like you just said, makes you the woman that you are today, but also a little bit of your origin story. And because I do, I love learning that from people because I think so much of that drives their passion and their purpose. So you shared, you know, born and raised in New York, very diverse. So you weren't born and raised in white spaces primarily, or were well, you? Well, actually, yeah. And that's kind okay. of I think my special okay. sauce and the thing that makes me different from a lot of other people in these sort of intersectional spaces is like, I am black. I am highly melanated. My whole, you know, my whole family of origin is black. I went, you know, and you read the beginning of our Brave Foremothers, the intro, you know, the old Southern aunties and all of that very much. That's like in the core of my, my origin story and DNA, but 
because I was plucked out of Catholic school in fifth grade. After fifth grade, I was a smart little studious girl and put into this elite girls private school in the mid 70s, right? Uh, New York was more fluid back then, let's say. I actually grew up in white spaces, right? Yeah. And um, I say jokingly today, I speak, I'm a native speaker of white progressive, right? And and the interesting thing about that is like for years, you know, I, I was maybe teased, you know, I always find some reason to tease you, right? Like, oh, you talk like a white girl, that old meme, right? That's died down largely in society. But when I was growing up, that was a real, that was a real thing. And I think my way of dealing with all of that confusion was I left and moved to France where it was like, well, everything here is different. So I'll just live in, in all of this difference. But um, it's been a, it's been a strength for me for sure, because I can go, I'll give you quick, really quick. I was in um, New Orleans last year, driving back to the um, airport. My driver's kind of like, you know, kind of, you know, like a, New Orleans white guy from the back country, you know, not really a hipster, shall we say. And he's listening to the rock and roll radio and, you know, Rolling Stone song comes on and I'm like, oh my God, I love this song. Like, let me tell you when I saw the Rolling and he was just shocked because he wasn't expecting this black woman to have any, and not only did I have a point of reference into his life, I had deep, deep reference. We got into this long conversation about the lyrics and this is and that. And when I got out of the cab, he hugged me. And I probably am the only black woman he's ever hugged, you know uh -huh, what I mean? Uh -huh. And that kind of thing happens a lot. And I like, it's almost like I like to pull it out. If you're just like a hater, forget it. There's nothing to be said. But I like to pull that out of people and like surprise them and have them go, wait a minute, these narratives that I write are not universal narratives. I got to check myself. I got to think about the way I interact. That to me is the sum total of my sort of eclectic pluralistic life that I've lived so far, I feel comfortable in lots of different spaces. And in my work of my day job, which we don't have to go into too much, one of the attributes I try to bring to them is if we're talking about ways to insert equity into the workplace in a real way, I'm able to go and sit with the black woman who says, I don't allow white people in my office or home. So if we want to meet, it has to be with your colleagues. It has to be in a cafe. I've had someone say that. And when I relay that story to my white colleagues, they laugh nervously because that's like a really uncomfortable reality to hear. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to say to them, let me explain to you how she got to that point, because mm -hmm. I know what brings someone to that point. And so in its best iteration, I can be this kind of bridge of like, yeah. here's some truth telling that's going to really kind of make you feel yucky. But once you know it, think how much better you're going to be in your design to unify with people and to work with them and to be with them in real space. So that also has flown into what I do and what I get to do freely through Brave Sis Project and my sort of world-changing ethos about how we can really, you know, cut through some crap, get over some hurdles to find what I call the beloved community. I want to stop you because I don't want you to get into it yet, okay? Okay. I want to okay. put a pin in that. And I hate interrupting, but I want to put a pin in that. No, because interrupt I me, Andrew, because I just, I'm a storyteller. I'll just go on. We'll have a five hour <laughs> podcast and you'll have an edit editing. I want to backtrack a little bit to what you said in your introduction, which I thought was so powerful. So let's go back to 
Rosie, when she was a little girl and you say I was intimidated as a little girl when it was time to visit my older aunt aunties. Little did I realize that these snippets, and I you, you say a little bit more, but little did I realize these snippets of time and talk were acts of women inserting themselves into history by staying safe and sanctified as whole. They could be, they were the women that were embodied by spirit, resilience, and bravery. Only decades later did I see that these women, my foremothers, forged a direct bridge to those who had come before. Absolutely. Oh, that's so powerful. So yeah. You saw years later after sitting through all that, like, oh my goodness, these are, these are my foremothers and the yeah. power in that. So what, was that a gradual process of opening your eyes to what these aunties and your mom and the, the black, yeah. what being black women and still existing and their resilience? Yeah. yeah. I think that it is gradual and the awakening to it, I really applaud the younger generations because they're kind of jumping right to it in ways, hopefully, you know, things like Bravesis will help them even see the value in that. When I was growing up, there was a lot of rejection of, of legacy roots, right? Like you were considered country or from the South, you know, like black people didn't want to listen to the blues and, and, and things like that, right? It's just a shame. I mean, America, like shame tied up in that. For sure. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of shame. This, you know, and you see it with rural white communities as well. You know, like you don't want to be seen as backwards or you don't want to be, you know, reminded also of that epigenetic harm. Right. Because there were people in my family who fled the South because they really kind of had to. And I don't know any stories of anyone who was up against a lynch mob or some of the other things we've read. But those that's what it was like. Right. And so I think there was a lot of kind of like a rupture. And, you know, let's be really let's be northern. Let's be really urban let's be sophisticated whatever that means and there's a whole wide realm of that from you know billy d williams to you know run dmc i mean there's like a wide range of what's considered having made it right and i think um for me growing up uh, also my family of origin they're very very religious very you all know, born again and i was not ever um in that level of faith uh practice let's say it in that way. And so there's always been a certain element of othering, even as a little kid, like what I write about in the book, like sit on the couch, don't, you know, don't make too much noise to be a proper young lady. I had a lot of rebellion against that, just being the person I am being, a, you know, kind of loud New Yorker tomboy kid. Um, but, but, and then also like, we have family reunions and everyone starts, you know, at one moment or like over the Zoom, they're like, all right, let's all pray to Jesus. And and I'm thinking, you know, some of my relatives are Muslim, like this isn't cool, <laughs> you know? And so there's always been this sort of thing of like, do I really even belong in, in this? Like, am I an orphan? And that's painful. That's sad. But then I realized there's so many things in my mannerisms, there's so many things in my lived knowledge, epigenetic, things I don't even know that I know that I actually know that come from these elders. And as I now see ways, you know, hmm, through food ways, through, through culture, through fashion, you know, Black women's church hats, um, that is a hearkening back to the Muslim head wrap because like a huge amount of the enslaved folks brought over were Muslim and we don't even know these things. So I guess what I'm trying to say is now that I'm able to see these things that I used to take for granted or consider problematic or bizarre or Southern or whatever in a broader, broader range, I have so much more appreciation 
for what they had to go through just to get to the place where someone like me could then have two kids who went to Ivy League schools, right? That's a big jump in one generation. And I want to give them their flowers and give them their props because they like, you know, they say you're your, your ancestors' wildest dreams. For some of them, I'm like way further than they could ever have imagined in a way that doesn't thrill them maybe, but that's okay because it's the fact that I now can say, I see you. And even though your vision was very limited by the circumstance, you still reminded me how to hold my head up high, how to have dignity, how to have gratitude, how to work hard, how to find joy, how to love. So it's been a real interesting circular journey from hiding to seeing, I guess, you know, yeah. and yeah. um, someone told me I'm a baby elder because of my age, you know, like I'm not quite, uh, she's 75, she said that. And I, and I, and I like this, this phase of life because it really does give me a chance to think about what's my, what's, what's my anchor point on this legacy. That's right. That's right. No, that's beautiful. And I, love that. And I think so often once we start to heal, we can step back and look at those ancestors flawed in all their ways, but then have so much grace and compassion for their stories and see them as the women that -hmm. were doing what they needed to do to survive Mm -hmm. and then what they instilled in us. So Mm -hmm. I I love that. Um, So then Brave Foremothers, speaking of that, you also share in the introduction that um, on Christmas day in 2019, a brave foremother visited you, that spirit, and instilled in you what you were supposed to create. And that was the Brave Sis Project. So share a little bit about what you heard that day and what you knew your mission was going sure. forward. Sure. Um, so I'd gone through a difficult time. I was fired from a job. You know, it was the typical pet to threat situation, which I'm sure you've heard about a lot. And it was really, really wounding to me in many ways. And I was very sad and I was in a really bad space. Slowly, you know, I um, started to find some kind of strength and resilience. And I said, okay, I'm going to like have accountability to myself. I'm going to, I'm going to journal. I'm going to, you know, just keep, keep myself, you know, be very, very, um, purposeful and so I started looking in the in the market and all of the journals I saw were like you know no offense you know the the Condren whatever her name is and the ones with the butterflies and the unicorns and all of these the market right and I was like I this is not me and then the ones for black women would have these I've written about this these glorious covers with beautiful flowing you know afros you go girl and then you open it and inside it was absolutely generic and that's such a bait and switch and that's so rude that's just like oh we're gonna lure you in with this fake cover I have a lot to say about luring people in with falsehood and not being authentic but we'll leave that for another day And so I was like, I'm going to create my own. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to create my own journal. I'm going to make 50 of them and like give them to my friends or whatever. On Christmas morning, this foremother spirit came to me and said, tell my, tell our story. So I was, I'm not super woo woo, but I was like, whoa. And I jumped out of bed and I was like, I'm going to start finding these women. I'm going to like create a journal and, and make it be all about them. I learned along the way that it would be better off not to include the super famous people because some of them have estates who are like, you didn't get our permission. And actually, I don't mind saying Audrey Lord's estate like said you cannot 
include her in your book. Like I wrote them back that's then. Interesting, because that's yeah, my question: how you decided, and also yeah. not seeing some people like Audrey Lord. But yeah. that's interesting. So I'll tell you. Okay. And and Maya Angelou's estate was like, we will charge you five hundred dollars for every. 2000 I don't know what it was it's like I was bootstrapping this little journal so I was like forget that so I'm gonna go with the people who don't have big commercial value I kind of love that because we want to keep telling these stories and not everybody knows and it's hard well this is and when so, the whole thing took yeah. flower and became yeah. like whoa there's so many women who should be household names who are not and then very quickly I was like this is not just about black women as we speak today is my best friend's birthday. She's Latina. I grew up in New York, so I grew up around Puerto Rican. I have so many Asian friends who are like really, you know, warriors for justice. And and I also worked for a couple of um, indigenous organizations when I lived in New Mexico. And it's like our indigenous sisters are always the ones that people don't even like see or think about. So I'm really focused on that. And I was like, I want a BIPOC space. I want a woman of color space. I want Black women to be able to celebrate Asian women. And I want Latina women to see their connection to the indigenous women. And I want to create this place where we can all be together. And the white women are welcomed as long as they recognize that they're not the center of this narrative, right? So that was for once, right? Because the, the, Products in the market were all about, you know, women in size zero bamboo pants and, you know, the whole sort of algorithmic, um, dis, you know, um, disaster, shall we say. And so I so I started writing about these women who were less known. And now I've got like a database of, you know, five or six hundred names. If people look at the Brave Sis project on Instagram, they can scroll down through four years of content of like celebrating these little known women. It really is. And we'll put a link to that because your Instagram sure. has so many yeah, stories. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I just, I love it. And so with the, with that vision, that spirit that talked to you creating the Brave Sis Project, did you know at that time, like the book was going to be part of it? Or was that just the, no. the journal and the community that you were It was wanting the to? journal alone. And at first it was okay. like going to be a wellness journal. If you saw the first one, I should, I didn't bring it in the room here, but it's got all these prompts. It has attitude, gratitude, like name 10 things you're and like two new things you want to try this month. It was all about that. And that was fun. And that was good, but that's not my niche. And I'm not going to beat out Aaron, the Erin Condrens and the happy planners of the world. Right. And so I just said, you know what, I'm going to shift this and make this be more about what's in my heart, which is like celebrating these women who are little known. I did a Kickstarter in 2020 that summer, and it was wildly successful and made 25 grand. It's been, it's been diminishing by halves ever since then, right? Like I don't make any money off of this project at all. It's just a labor of love, sadly for me, uh, cause it would be really dope if I did, cause it's great and it fills me with joy. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the outcomes of the uh, Kickstarter was a friend of mine who worked at Algonquin maybe connected me to Katie Workman, the daughter of the founder of Workman Press. And they were like, we don't want to do a data journal. We want to do a book. And so that became this, that became our brave foremothers. So the book became a real exponent of the project the first time the four mothers came was when I was giving birth to my second daughter. I was alone in the hospital room. Jade is about to turn 23 and I was in transition, which is nobody's fun. And, and I, and I saw an image go through my head of a woman in a field 
And I was like, oh my God, that's the ancestor telling me you're going to survive this birthing process, even though you're alone in a hospital room and no one's returning, you're hitting the call button. So that was the first time I had that portal to the past. And then the tell my story. And then this summer we went through um, a really injurious um, situation for my husband that was very, very re-triggering of a lot of injustice that I'd experienced. And I was down in the dumps and the force came again in my, woke me up saying, you exist to create holy spaces for women to come together in joy and celebration. That's the next phase of Brave Sisters we can talk about if you or the f- deeper flowering of what I'm trying to do. But it's amazing to me, Andrea, that each time it's been in this moment of real pain and a lot of sadness that they've like they've come to me and been like, you know, and someone said to me, you have been anointed. And I'm like, oh, that's a really big word. But it does feel like this is not about me. This is something that I'm just open to and flowing it out. And because I have that proximity to white progressive people and, you know, women, you know, the the moms, mama sphere, all of those things, I think I'm able to be a bridger, as as yeah. we say, and not a breaker, as um, John Powell of the Othering and Belonging Institute puts it. So I'm just riding it, you know, and when I get frustrated and I'm like, ugh, I can't go on. This is so much work. Nothing, no one cares. It's like they almost come to my shoulder and say, keep mm. going, girl. What are you talking about? We had to like sit in in Selma or whatever, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay, okay. That's so beautiful. And I want to talk, dive in a little deeper, one with the book and then also the community you're building. So let's talk about the book first. Um okay. They said we're in Black History Month when this episode's released, which I hate to even say that because Black history is American history. Every month is Black history. So let's just say that. But I know people pay closer attention often during this month in Women's History Month. And there is not a better book or time to buy your book, Our Brave Foremothers, that just released last year. And you celebrate 100 Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian women who changed the course of history And like you just said, one of my questions was, how'd you choose these 100 women? But you helped answer that a little bit with why some of the big ones aren't in there. But again, I love that, like, as I was, I feel like I'm fairly well-read and have really dug into history, but there's so many of these women that I'm like, how have I never heard of this woman? Well, I know why, because our history does not teach us about these women. So how did you choose these 100 women? Um, It's amazing, really, because now I'm at the point where people, and this is something I want more people to engage with the Instagram to help and tell me, people send me stories of people now. They're like, hey, Rosie, have you ever heard of? And my big goal from the writing point of view is I want to do a World Brave Sis. So I'm just putting it out Mm -hmm. there. I want to start gathering stories of amazing women from other countries who are really, who've built their cultural liberation stories, right? But when I was working on this, um, we had an agreement with the uh, publisher that no more than I think 15 or 20 of them could be women who were in any of the versions of my journal. And by then I had already done two and now we've done four. And so, so I picked the 15 who were in there who or maybe 15 or 16 and they're kind of my all stars who have to be in everything I do. You know, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, and so um, Wilma Mankiller, um, Yuri Kochiyama, who I adore, um, her history. And then I was like, okay, who else? And so I, I just started scanning 
you know, I have these books, these weird encyclopedias, like the black woman in America, they're like this thick and they're kind of dated, but there were some other ones and I have one, the Asian American history. And I just did a lot of research. You know, I'm not a researcher. I have a day job. I couldn't go to the archives of every state. So it was what I could find online. And I just started like curating and culling women um, to include and women expansively, right? We've got a several couple of trans um activists in there. And then one person who actually is a man, but they masqueraded as a woman. And the story is that. And um, anyway, I started gathering all these different people and then saying, okay, I've got like, obviously 90% of the book could be black women because our histories have been really well documented because we were property in so many instances really hard to find brown women, which is like both Latina or women from the North Africa, Middle East or South Asia, because until the mid 60s or 70s, those women chose whiteness. They chose whiteness as their qualifier. So the first year, this is getting a little deep, but I think it's interesting. The first year, I included a lot of Puerto Rican women who I would never include today because they were acting like they were Castilian women, right? They were living their life like that. So I've gotten, my lens has gotten more precise as I've grown. And so it's women, you know, Afro-Latina women or women who indigenous women or the intersections, but not women who happen to be, mm, example, Raquel Welch, she was Bolivian. She was Latina. But she didn't claim her Latinidad until like way at the end of her life. Carol Channing, I think, who was Hello Dolly, she was black. No one knew that she was, she is a Creole woman. And 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 there's been several like that who late in life. So, you know, you sort of play with them. Well, by today's standards, would they have come out earlier in their career? These are all the kinds of things that I was juggling as I tried to put the women together. The most important part is I needed for almost all of them to have passed to the ancestral realm. There are only four okay. living women in that book. Sonia Sotomayor, Dolores Huerta, uh, Angela Davis, whom I 22 year old met at a party in New York recently, which blows my mind. And then Claudette Colvin, who did the first sit-in before, um, wrote first person to refuse to get off the bus before Rosa Parks. And the reason they had to be no longer alive is because like a lot of the heroes I had growing up from Burma, the uh, An Sin Kung, I can't pronounce her name right, um, Sandinista guy, um, Daniel Ortega, these people we upheld as freedom fighters later in Europe actually became kind of tyrannical and really, really not good. So I don't want any of that. I don't want anyone who like in the last, oh my God, what a disappointment. So that's, right. that's been a, a and, and then as I was writing it, um, Cicely Tyson passed away and I wrote my editor and I said, I want to take so-and-so out of Cicely Tyson because I, I, I mean, she is famous, but I just, she's so enormous in the history of what she's meant to black women and just representation. So yeah, so it's been a real interesting, and some yeah. of them, you know, you had to dig deep and you can tell in the book where there's not a lot of source material. You right, can see the, right. the, the image is bigger. <laughs> Some, there are no quotes because there's literally no quotes. And the most telling thing is you can, when, if you're a savvy reader, you'll see where the illustrator did something interesting, like a woman reaching for a book or from behind or on a bicycle, because there exists no source material, no photograph of them, no nothing. And, wow. um, 
And I mean, we don't have time to go into all of the details. Now, that's a whole fascinating thing in and of itself, uh, representation. I'll say one, Charlotte E. Ray, who was the first Black woman to pass the bar, and she only got to um, practice law for a short period of time. The photo of her is a woman reaching up to a bookshelf to um, pull down a law book, because if you Google that name, you're going to see photos of the opera singer, opera singer Marian Anderson. And the way you know is because Charlotte Ray died in 1911. And if you look at the photos that people say are her, the hair, the, the, the clothing, that's the clothing of the 30s at best. And also in 1911, no one was taking photos of Black people. Let's just think a little bit here. And yeah. so there's a little bit of like laziness, inaccessibility to historical fact and document, and frankly, like not really caring, like who cares whose picture we put up there? Who cares? And that's, you know, I'm not a, I say it in the intro, I'm a small H historian, but I think the least we can do is like represent these women as they really were. You know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. There are so many things. I mean, your your book gives about two pages to each woman. Yeah. And like you said, it's illustrated. Some have quotes, but now that makes sense why some don't because you couldn't find them. And then you give a little question, just a, a thought to dive deeper into. And like, you know, what you were just speaking into, I just opened the book to old Elizabeth. And I, I read that one a couple of times. I'm like, old Elizabeth, like, what is her name? And you say <laughs> as a practice. As yeah. was the practice, she was given neither a last name nor form formal instruction reading and writing. So and unless they were property and passed down from the, the male slaveholder, they were not given a last name. Like, I, I can't imagine how many obstacles you encountered with trying to get accurate histories and names. The hardest was Mary Richards, um, who has a whole bunch of different names. Mary Bowser, this, that, the other. She was a spy. During the Civil War, she had a photographic memory. So she was able to, as a Black woman, slip into spaces without anyone even seeing her and like see all the documents. It's not, it's an apocryphal story that she was in, what is his name, Stonewall Jackson's house doing cleaning up and she got the plans for a big thing. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but the interesting thing about her is that the Houston Grand Opera just uh, premiered an opera about Elizabeth Van Loo, who was her owner, but also her collaborator, um, about World War, about the Civil War. And I forget, it's called, I forget what it's called. We can look it up later, but it just premiered this fall. And the guy who wrote the music, Jake Heggie, is a composer my husband knows because John's a composer and conductor. And I was like, well, I hope that they did justice to Mary Bowser and didn't have her just as like the quintessential best black friend, you know, because that would be really so 90s. Um, and apparently they did a beautiful job. Um, the guy from Urban Bushwoman was the writer of the um, libretto, I think. And so they did a they did a fine job. But that made me so happy, Andrea, because it's like, wow, that was the most obscure person in this whole book. And now she's in an opera. And just think how much richer we'd be if you know, just all of those women, not just my 100, but the others. And the piece, if they were to be given a moment in their, in the shine, as opposed to hearing about the same boring celebrities again and again and again. And the other thing is it inspires us to go to our aunties and our grandmothers and our elders and get their stories and value them and value them in a different way. And so that feels like a really important part of an outcome from the work in the book yeah so since we are in black history month women's history month 
I'm going to ask you, and I'm sure these questions are impossible to pick favorites or most inspiring, but I just want to highlight, and you mentioned a few of the names, but let's just start with perhaps the woman that's like maybe most inspiring to you that's in the book that you're just like, oh, I just like she, her life, her legacy is, I'm sure it's hard to pick one. It but if is you have hard, to, but the person that I always bring up, we just make sure, uh, yeah, oh, it's the, um, it's the alpha and the omega of the book. The in a, in many ways the first person and I always always come back to is Ada Blackjack. I love Ada Blackjack's story. It is not a story with a happy end, but it is a story that is so resilient. She was stuck up above the Arctic Circle alone in a foiled expedition. She was going to be the cook for the expedition because she needed to earn money to get her son out of a tuberculosis sanatorium. All the guys like took off or three of them took off because they shipwrecked and they were never seen again. They probably eaten by polar bears. And Ada was left alone with this one guy and he was rude and abusive to her, really mean. He died of scurvy. She tried to keep him al alive. And then she was stuck up there alone with the cat for like a winter. And she figured it out. Like, again, something in her, you know ancestral knowledge who knows what she figured out how to like hunt and skin and use the the, the camera to take photos of herself amazing 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 story and then when she was finally rescued she was maligned in the press you know which is what happens a lot right in our unjust world they were like why didn't you save his life and the expedition leader got all the money and all the fame and she was obscure and she died poor so and she did get her son back and she had another kid, but she didn't have a happy life. And, you know, neither did Phyllis Wheatley, the great poet, like after she wrote a poetry book, she had a really sad life. And yeah, life, the arc of life might end in something sad, but let's celebrate what did matter, what you did, and let's uplift that part of the story, right? So that makes Ada super important to me. And then the last one, Yuri Kochiyama. So when I saw the, the galleys and I saw this illustration that Joel Avellino did, I burst into tears because this is just like the, I mean, look at that. It's just the greatest. That's everything about all that I want to say. She uh, came up as a middle-class Japanese-American teenager in California World War II happened. The Japanese internment tore her family apart. Her dad died in one of those concentration camps, really, that we had to hold Japanese Americans. She grew up, moved to New York, became politicized because she was living in the projects in the Black community, started to connect with the, you know, Black Panthers and the Young Lords. Like, she was very intrigued by their liberation efforts. She went to hear Malcolm X speak and stood in line at the end to shake his hand. And he was like, why are you, who are you? Why are you coming to me? And she says, I love what you're trying to do for your people. And I want to do that for my own. And then the famous photo, they became friends and the famous photo of him when he's been shot, assassinated and is dying. She is the one cradling him in her arms. And so few, many people know that photo. They don't know it was a Japanese American woman who held him in the last moment. And that's super important because we have this prevailing narrative that black people and Asian American people don't get along, which is just a fake 
terrible thing. There's a there's a rap song. It's not famous or anything, but it goes, word to your mama. When I grow up, I want to be like Yuri Kochiyama. <laughs> I think that's really cool. And Yuri's daughter, who I've only encountered briefly in Instagram, she is um, um a super activist for liberation and justice. Really cool woman, like way, way up there. And again, it's like, we need to know those women and their stories existed so we can have the courage to go outside of the box that tells us who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be satisfied with, you know, it feels really important. So those are two of my famous favorites, or not favorites, two that come to mind. Those are the two that I'm always like, God, I love those women. They're amazing. Well, looking at her, because I have my book and following along as you share about them. So looking at her page, you have the quote that she says, the legacy I would like to leave is that people try to build bridges and not walls. Mm -hmm. And I feel like at least... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that's what you're also trying to do with the Brave Sis project and the community that you're creating. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like you said, the ancestors, foremothers visited you and said, now you're, you are to create like this community yeah. of women. And that, yeah. that is what you're trying to do. So talk a little bit about that and what your goal sure. is with that, what it is. I know you have a cohort coming up. What I know is that there's certain gatherings of women when we come together um, and share our truth that can be transformative. And I also know that in the world of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I don't even like to use that term anymore to describe Brave Sis, and I'm using beloved community instead okay. because we've gotten to a point where so many people do performative checkbox DEI things that I personally, in my heart of hearts, am disinterested. Um, I think it it gives lets people off the hook for for superficial surface ideas and, and actions. For me, the change that needs to be sustainable and authentic and give you the courage to go through the division, the opposition, you know, the criticism of trying to be pluralistic and, and welcoming. It has to be come from your internal self, from your mindset shift, from understanding blind spots. Like I said, my friends, husbands, and you know, you always talk about yourself. That was a blind spot I didn't know my friend said. That was a blind spot I didn't have. And it hurt to hear it, but it helped make me a better person. So I think that white women who want to be allies, who, you know, you don't get to say you're an ally. You don't get to say I'm an ally. That is something that has to be conferred on you by the person you are wishing to ally with. That's one of the big challenges we have, particularly in progressive spaces. And so, but how can we create places where that conference can happen if people are separated all the time? And how can we create spaces that feel that with the ground rules are about let's let's try to be there for each other you know in this discrete little space like we don't have to do it all in the old days you had a you know you, your church might have been integrated or your schools god help us you know you had more uh, again for me growing up in new york city more opportunity to mix and mingle so i'm trying to launch more communal moments of just getting to some things, you know, a lot of it is me saying, look, white women, let me tell you some things you need to know and you need to hear. And I'm going to tell it to you in a way that you can absorb it and not be hurt and brokenhearted and make it be all about your pain, right? There's some of that. But also, I really hope that Indigenous women will come in and say, well, you know, when we talk about this, we forget 
what it means to my people and and that we can learn and grow. Like I feel I have a lot of books in me still and I feel like fodder for real exchange will really um, enable me to to even find more stories and more ways to to convey you know what I hope is a liberation theory for us as women. I think um this country, you know, our society is at the cusp of a real shift and I think it it's almost like a healing crisis the level of anger and hatred and division we have. It is not sustainable. I may not live to see whatever that next day looks like, but I think there is something shifting at a really huge level and I want us to be prepared to step into it. When I was a kid, I used to go to the New York Mets baseball games. I loved the Mets as a kid. I don't know how I think about baseball anymore, but, and I would go and I'd be this one little black girl with all these guys from Long Island, all these burly rough guys. And I think today we would probably not talk to each other because of the MAGA divisions and, you know, be like, but I remember how we would high five and clap hands and, 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 and hug when the Mets won or whatever, right? And I think sports still can do that. And I'm trying to create something that feels a little bit like that. Like, let's come together. I know a lot of Black women are going to be like, I want no part of that. I don't want to be, I, I don't let them in my house, in my office. And that's fine. You do you and that is your right. But for those who are like, you know, I got some things I want to try to convey. I still want to be a friend. I want to be a real one. I know enough of those women to know that's true and viable. And I certainly know enough white women who are like, God help me. How can I, how can I be better? I met Toni Morrison when I was in my twenties. I had the great pleasure of interviewing her when I lived in Paris. And she said something to me. She said, I don't educate anyone who's not buying my books or paying tuition. And at the time I didn't know what she meant, but now I understand it. I need to create a container for that and a, and a purpose for that energetic flow that people are so attracted. Rosie, can you tell me about this? How do you, th even at work, you know, is this equitable? It's like, oh my God, I'm not the, 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 the um, what do you call it? The Oracle, you know, but if people want to have those conversations, I want to create a framework and a format within which to have them. And I want them to make sense and I want them to be contained and I want them to be purposeful. So that's the big hope. Whether I get there or not, that's a lot of steps. I've got to be able to, um, you know, have more people know about the work, attract them to the work, hopefully engage with some of the parts that, you know, actually bring in some income. I can do free Instagrams to these cows come home, but, you know, eventually. Yeah. As white women, it's important that we're paying black women to educate. And so this yeah. is not a free group, free cohort that you have coming up, nor should it be. I mean, no. this you need to be getting paid for your time. And so just to clarify the cohort that you have coming up, it's for black, brown, white, indigenous, all, all women. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's um called building the beloved community and it is scheduled to launch in mid February. Um, I need a, you know, I need a, a minimally viable number of, of enrollees to make it be a real exchange. Uh, and it does have a price. It's um, there are eight sessions that are 90 minutes long. I've got amazing material that I've been testing and, and using in, in facilitations for years now, frankly. And I've brought it all together in this beautiful package. $750 if you're being sponsored by your company and $500 if you're paying out of pocket. I'd like to, over time do smaller chunks and different types of iterations. Someone even said, you should do a teachable. I just don't have time to 
keep converting all that content unless I start to see that it's truly viable. But it is so ready. It is so there for the having. And this is going to be past tense. But um, February 4th is the first Instagram live that I'm doing just because I want to hang out with people. I want to have more of these conversations. It's fulfilling to me to be building and disseminating that content that makes me feel more anchored in my purpose in life. And so it's fun for me to do that. And I'm just trying to consolidate it into something real. It goes, harkens back to the books because I often use stories of the women as the launch pad for the, the learning or the exploration, the co-learning, the co co-creation. I'm not sitting here like some lecturer. I'm really a convener. So it sounds to me like you are hope-filled for the next stages, even though that can be hard when you look at where we're at right now with the next presidential election, we got Palestine, like all this division. Yep. And sometimes yep. it can seem like, oh my gosh, we're just yep. getting more and more yep. divided. And but some one of my past guests, she said, no, this is because the system is shaking and cracking and falling. And that's why we're seeing people holding on even more in the dividing. So do you feel that as well? Because you do seem hope filled for the next. I'd like to. On a good day, I do, but let's be honest, you know, like this is a tough world. I am reminded of, oh, I forgot to say with the ancestor in the childbirth, when I saw the vision, it said, be brave, right? Mm -hmm. Hence, brave sis, brave foremother. It's all about bravery. I've written about this in the past when I was really down in the dumps when I had lost that job. That voice also said, bravery is all you have. And Lord knows we are so, the trials are so many, but we have to be brave because if the people who came before us weren't, we wouldn't be here. I always think of Fannie Lou Hamer when I think about whenever things are bad. I mean, my God, like, you know, her friend Medgar Evers was assassinated. Ida B. Wells too, their friend was lynched. You know, these people are up against things that are much worse than what we're up against most of us in our privilege because we all, most of us, anyone watching this um, podcast has Wi-Fi and a computer and a thing and a home, you know, so it's already a thing, right? And we've got to remember what what they went through. I mean, Harriet Tubman, for God's sakes, you know, she was disabled, you know, she was hit in the head with an iron. And so she had narcolepsy and, and, and visions and like, also, yet she managed to lead all those people through the underground world. I don't even know what that could be like. My God, I can't, I mean, I can barely walk in the you know, trail behind my house, coming back up from the, the sound. I'm, I'm down at the beach in 15 minutes, but I rarely go because it's a 40 minute climb back up. And I'm like, Ugh. you know, and so it's like, we have to remember what they went through and we have to be brave and resilient and hope. And even when we don't hope, we have to pretend that we hope. And that's when I feel like we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? It can help us get out of our head to think for a minute, wait a minute, they did this, I can do this little bit. That's, that's, you know, that's energetically aspirational because God knows what we see when we look out in the world right now is terrifying and very negative. But look how you and I are able to come together in this space and have this super meaningful conversation. I feel, I feel it so much. And so someone said to me, Rosie, are you sure you're not? Because they said beloved community is a is a is a religious, you know. Are you sure you're not trying to be a minister? I was like, just a minister of sisterhood and love, <laughs> you know. And it does feel that way, man. Why why let it? Why give in to the haters? Frankly, like why? Like we only have this one life. 
why not why don't we try to fill it with joy and 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 plentitude for god's and as sake you're sharing as you were going through all those women's stories i mean that again shows the power of knowing these stories because when your life can feel or everything can feel hopeless when you look back on some of these incredible women and what they overcame and their resilience it can't help but give you just a little bit more oomph and hope to keep keep going And you see more of that in the culture. You know, I went to the African-American History and Culture Museum in D.C. finally and uh, watched the little short film August 28th by Ava DuVernay. And the story, it's amazing, amazing little film. And the storytelling, we're seeing more of it. Um, You're seeing more representation. You're seeing more historical lens. Even something like Reservation Dogs, I think is that TV show. I haven't really watched it. But everyone's like, it is amazing. It tells the story of indigenous people today. You know, that's good. Let's get more stories. I personally haven't even seen Oppenheimer because I'm not really interested. And I like don't want to know about another great white man personally, right? Like I've had had my bill. Although, you know, loved Barbie. Barbie's amazing. And just going to shout out Ryan. Now, that could be controversial. We're not even going to get into that. Yeah, but but l- unless we go there, just, yeah, what, you know, I love, okay. um, I love Greta's work. She's amazing, but I'm just going to shout out Ryan Gosling because he is a real one, because I think it's important to say that like, there are a lot of white guys who got this right and are doing, doing the right thing and wanting to be the right way. I am married to a white man, big news flash. Everyone, anyone who's seen my family knows that we've been married for 30, almost 30 years there are real ones out there. So I think that's another big piece of what we have to remember too. It's like all these flat narratives about who is what and what is what is good. It's just all like, you know, let's be a little more discerning in how we interpret the world we live in and like stop letting other people telling us how to think. And like, that's why there are prompts at the end of this book. Sit with this and think about what this means for you and what you want to do in response to it. Like you have it in you, you have it in you, each of us. And so let's just tap into it. Speaking of your prompts. Yes. I, I'm going to kind of end our conversation with asking you one of one of the prompts, if that's okay. Sure. So this season on the podcast, even though I'm not doing as many episodes, is really focused on like liberation for all and what that means. Mm-hmm. So one of the women that you highlight who I love, Florence Flo Kennedy, and people can if they don't know her story, can Google and find out more and get read about her in your book. You ask at the end with one of the little, think a little deeper. You say one of Flo's most famous quotes is freedom is like taking a bath. You got to keep doing it every day. What's a daily practice you can take up to add more strength and purpose to your life. So I'd love to ask you, do you have a daily practice that like adds to your own liberation or freedom that you continue to do daily or most days or try to? That is so good because I spend so much of my time reading all these books where I have like a pile. So I want to say reading, but I don't think that is the right one. Um, The thing that I do almost every day is I walk my dog in the, in the back behind our house in the, we abut a state, a regional park. So it's like, I live in a forest and I walk Pippa every day. We do a little loop. And it's really wonderful for me to see the seasons changing. Like yesterday, it almost started to feel like spring, which is kind of insane, you know, for February. But I look out at the water because we're up above the sound and I get to connect with nature. And why is that important is because I grew up in New York City. 
I grew up in a highly urbanized, I grew up rejecting the South because the backwoods was a date an unsafe place for black people, right? Yeah. And that is an epigenetic learning that is deep, deep in here, right? And so, you know, people like Rue Mapp with her um, urban outdoor Afro and groups like that, that are really trying to push back against those epigenetic norms of who belongs in the great outdoors. So I'm not like a super outdoors woman at all, but just even that curated experience of nature is something that I feel is me grabbing agency from a place that wasn't, wasn't really written, you know, John Muir and these other folks were like, you know, they were white supremacists and they were eugenicists, <laughs> right? So it wasn't a place I was really supposed to be. And it's not like I'm taking and going to the back 40 and living off the land for a week or anything like that. But just that daily thing of getting out there, seeing the, the leaves and the plants and the trees and the water and feeling like I can, I can be here and be still, that feels like a real a little sort of short victory plus my dog is great and she just reminds me you know to take it easy and like dogs live entirely in the moment and so that is I'm grateful for her and for that part of my practice I I think that's a beautiful answer and I'm I'm reminded of the few conversations we've had a little bit about Alice Walker and I think she embodied so much of that of like connecting to nature and seeing the divine yeah in nature And just noticing, even though that small little walk, looking out over the cliff, I mean, that is a daily act of liberation and freedom, especially, like you said, for a Black woman whose history was not safe to be alone in nature. And that's another thing. Bell Hooks, too, is really interesting that way because she went back to, I think, Kentucky was where she was from, Appalachia, Appalachia. And, you know, we don't think about Black people often when we think about Appalachia, but she's like, "This this was truly where I am from. So there is all of this thing of re- rewriting um, stock narratives about who gets to do what and who looks what X, Y, Z looks like and who has access or the right to um, enjoy or or commune. I think all of that's really important. Um, yeah. So I look forward to more conversations with people about mm-hmm. this. And Alice's book is one of the, her, you know, her new memoirs or diaries is another one that's on my, on my pile to read. And I, I look at it longingly and like someday ah, we shall be together. <laughs> you know, so many, re- so much reading and so many stories. Well, I've just like, this has been a sacred conversation and I'm so grateful just for sharing this little bit uh, with me, this peek into your life and how the book came to be. Tell my listeners where they can find you on Instagram, sure. on your website, where they can find out more about the beloved community. And we'll obviously put those links in the show notes. But if you could just share verbally sure. where to find them. Well, I think the two most important platforms are the website, bravesis.com, because there's a lot of information there. There's also a lot of really cute merch, like you know, t-shirts and bags and 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 uh, notepads and things like that, that kind of like let you represent your brave sis- system. But also, you know, I don't do a lot of e-newsletters. I don't want to inundate people, but once a month I do share out. And I think that's a really good way to sort of connect with the larger arc of the work on the more regular basis. You know, the social media platform that I use the most is Instagram. So it's brave hashtag um, at brave sis project. That's where I, there are four years of scrolling down you can do to read about all of these amazing women over time. I enjoyed that. I've pulled away from doing it um, daily or weekly. Now I, I'm a little more free form. 
but I think that's a good space. There's a Facebook group and I just got some, some education this morning about Facebook's algorithm. So I'm going to be bringing a little more attention to that. I have a TikTok, but I, you know, it's not enough hours in the day for me to really engage there. <laughs> I'm not on TikTok at all. So yeah, it's yeah, fine. It's, it's yeah. hard to to do yeah. all these spaces, yeah. but I would agree. Instagram is a great place. And especially mm -hmm. to start diving into these women's stories that we, you likely have not heard about. I mean, I spent a lot of time on your Instagram just the last couple of days. And I was just, I think I could have it's, spent all, all day just learning these stories. And then book, what's the best place to, if people want to buy it? The best place is an independent bookstore, frankly. I mean, Amazon, sure, but they've like slashed the price. It doesn't make a difference to me. I mean, royalties will never be, that, those are years down the line with the way book publishing goes. But small independent bookstore, any, any online portal. This one, the Perpetual Journal, you can only get through my website, bravesys.com. Okay, well, we will make sure to put links to all of that. And again, your book is called Our Brave Foremothers Celebrating 100 Black, Brown, Asian, and Indigenous Women Who Changed the Course of History. Thank you so much for this conversation, your work, your voice, just all of it. Thank you so much again. I'm just honored to have this time with you. I'm so grateful for the work you do and your bravery. so much for listening in on my conversation with Rosie. I hope now you'll go follow her on Instagram at Brave Sis Project to learn more stories about the remarkable women she highlights. And then of course, go buy her book, her journal, and lots of other items at bravesis.com. Mm -hmm.